0: what's going on everybody i'm jeff st pierre and this is episode 90 of the adult education podcast this week i'm hanging out with author and physician dr dana Suskind. Thank you for listening today. Seriously, I appreciate you taking some time out of your day to check out the show. Adult Education is a fun project for me that I do out of the love of conversation and learning. If you want to support me or the show, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. And if your platform you're listening on allows a review, please share a few words. That also really helps the podcast algorithm gods know which shows they want to push out to some new listeners. And we're also on Instagram at Adult Education Podcast if you want to follow us there. First of all, pretty exciting that this is the 90th episode of the show, right? Thank you so much for your support and for listening to each episode. I've said this before. I don't make any money off this. I just do it for fun. And I love that there are people like yourself that have been interested in these conversations. It really kind of keeps me moving. This chat in particular, I think, is really great. I hit a, an awesome rhythm with this guest, and I didn't want the conversation to end. In fact, I'll explain this more in a second. But this conversation was actually done in two different parts because we couldn't get it all done at once. In this episode of Adult Education, I'm talking with author and physician Dr. Dana Suskind. She's the author of the new book Parent Nation: Unlocking Every Child's Potential, Fulfilling Society's Promise. Now, I went into this book with the wrong impression. I figured, based on the title, that this was going to be a book about things we can do to educate and raise our kids. And it is that in a way, but Parent Nation is more than that. It's way more than that. It's more about what we can do to help support parents so that they can offer more to their kids. You see, that's the biggest problem that we have these days. Parents are spread so thin trying to support the family and make things work. Whether it's you know both parents working long days in order to afford basic goods, or it's parents who can't get paid time off to take care of sick kids. It just feels like the system is designed for parents to fail. We can and should do better for parents of young kids. And that's what Parent Nation is really all about. I am so fascinated by this book. It's inspired me in so many different ways since I first opened it up a couple of weeks ago. As I mentioned before, this interview happened in two parts. I had about 25 minutes with Dr. Susskind during her promotional tour of the book, and that just turned out to not be enough time. I felt like I was rushing it, and we were skipping over some parts I wanted to talk about. As you'll hear during the conversation, we reconnected to finish our chat. I did think about editing it all together, so you didn't hear any of that stuff. Uh, But after listening back, I kind of like that you get the real version here. You know, this is real life. We're all vulnerable. This is how it went down. So enjoy my conversation with Dr. Dana Suskin. (laughs) Hi there. How are you?
1: Good. It's like a whirlwind. I was like, oh, am I supposed to? I apologize.
0: No, that's okay. I understand these things can be kind of crazy when you're jumping from one thing <laughs> to the next nonstop.
1: Surgery is much easier, let me tell you. I don't know how you do your job.
0: <laughs> well, uh, Dr. Suskind, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, my dad actually has a cochlear implant. Now, he wouldn't have gotten it as a pediatric patient. Like, I know that's what you work with primarily. But yeah. when I saw that about you, I was like, oh, I, I feel like that's such a niche thing that not everybody really understands. So yeah. I was very excited to chat with you today.
1: Where where did he get it?
0: Ah, great question. He lives in New Hampshire. I'm assuming it was done in New Hampshire. I was not living yeah. with them at the time. He was about 55 years old. This was 2000. Oh, he
1: was 7? Oh, he was relatively young actually.
0: Okay. Yeah. I mean, he had been deaf since he was a child um, and then found out that he was a candidate and he went for it. Now, of course, in our wonderful system that we have, uh, insurance would only pay for one because two of them would have been considered cosmetic. So he only has one and not two, but he likes it. If
1: he, I bet you, I mean, things have changed. So now they're doing too much more. So are you a coda? I mean, did he sign? or? No, he
0: didn't. He learned to read lips very early on. So I actually Amazing. never had to sign. He's really, <laughs> he's really. Really great in social settings. I'll give him that. He doesn't always understand what's going on, but he can read people's emotions and faces and everything very well. Ah, that he can okay. usually play along in a social setting. That he never even learned how to sign either. So,
1: interesting. And your mother? I'm sorry. Now, now I'm interviewing you. Right? Oh, is your and your mother? Um, she doesn't have hearing loss.
0: No, no. He, uh oh. no, They met when he was. He had his hearing loss. Yeah, but no. She is. Uh, she is hearing. Yeah.
1: That's so cool. Have you seen CODA? Gosh, I know we got to start this. No, interview. that's
0: okay. I, I haven't seen it yet. I, and it's one of those things that's like on my list, but I had a, a baby uh, 16 months ago. So she's 16 months old. And as you probably understand, there's very little <laughs> time that I have to sit down to watch so, movies. Th- so this book is for you. <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, I, that, honestly, when I saw the title of the book and read a little bit of the you know excerpt of it, I was like, this is what I need to be talking about. And the <laughs> cochlear implant thing was a whole nother added bonus when I was looking you up to find out more about you.
1: Oh, neat. Well, thank
0: you. Well, it's really a pleasure to talk to you. Have you ever seen Jerry Maguire?
1: Oh yeah. So
0: I feel you like, had me at- yeah, this is your Jerry Maguire moment. Like I feel like this is that like when he writes that whole manifesto about how they're doing their job and he sends it out to all of his coworkers and they all applaud him and they cheer when he walks in the room, but then he gets fired and nobody has his back. Like I almost wonder like, is this, cause this is such a, a fascinating piece of work that says all the things that we should be doing and giving us the instruction of what we need to do. But I can't help but wonder, will the people that need to do it actually get it done?
1: I love that. And I have to tell you, I I don't know if we want to go down this, but the difference in the response to the first book versus the second book has been eye opening. I've never talked about this on an interview, but the first book, it's like it's sold itself. It's like one more thing that parent it's because it's one more thing that puts the onus on parents, and it was all true. I mean, it is all true, right? Parents are the key brain architects. But when you really think about what needs to happen in a society to truly support parents, especially in the early years, and Jeff, I know you're living it, um, it's, it's a much bigger ask. And I have to tell you, I've, I love that, <laughs> that analogy. Um, Yeah, could be, but we need, that's why you're helping me get it out into the world is a huge thing. Thank
0: you. I'm trying to do my best. And I, you know, it is, it is interesting because so many books about parenting tend to be so focused on the child. And it's not that this book isn't, But this book does put a larger focus on how the adults need to impact the child and how much support the adults need to be able to do that job properly. And I've never read anything or seen anything that really tackles that topic the way that Parent Nation does.
1: Yeah. Well, you know what? I always say the health and well-being of children depends on the support for parents. And in this country, we give almost no supports in the first five years of life. We've been convinced that having a child is like having a puppy. It is like literally all all on you, but at least puppies have laws that prevent you from separating them from their mother, you know, before the first eight weeks, but even human beings don't have that in this country. So uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, you're exactly right.
0: And we keep but it hearing, can change. you know, and I hope that it does because we also keep hearing from people about how the birth rates are going down and, you know, and I know lawmakers want parents to have people to have more children and all. But it's like, but it's impossible. Like even my wife and I, we, we do fairly well. We do more, we do better than the, you know, the, the average person in America. We're doing okay but even we have decided one is it like we can't handle two we can't afford two we can't handle the the cost for the childcare and both of us working we can't we can't do that and and i just think about how other people that are not doing that're not as fortunate as us like how can they handle to have any more how can they even handle to have one at this point you know
1: yeah i mean you bring up exactly right i mean we In this book, I talk about all the reasons that we need to invest for the healthy brain development of children, for the betterment of society, but we are looking down the barrel of a fertility crisis um, where you you need to have about every uh, 2.1 children to maintain our population. We are down to 1.6 per person, and people are either not having them or delaying them often because of the lack, how expensive and how stressful it is to have children. So there there are many reasons that we need better societal support. But, uh, and parent, look, people should be able to decide not to have children on their own. That's up to them. But it shouldn't be because we have no societal supports, because our country needs a well, you know, a strong citizenry in the future. I mean, I don't think people realize that economies shrink. Social security, you know, is based on today's workers, and we're going to be tomorrow's elderly. And if we have nobody paying into social security, you know, we're we're in trouble. There's we won't have the doctors and teachers and you know, radio broadcasters to make this world the way it is.
0: Well, the world can probably continue without people like me. I think we'll be okay. But the doctors <laughs> and the teachers, well, teachers is a big thing too, because I mean, just in the last couple of years, the, the the abuse that teachers have received from so many people, and even doctors, I mean, science, like this book is very scientific. You take a look at all the different science behind everything, but science has even come under attack. And it's so difficult to to take this and go, well, look, we have, factual information that this is the way we should do it because you know someone's going to come out and go, well, that's that's your factual information, but my factual yeah. information says something else.
1: Yeah. No, I, I prefer to anchor on what we all can agree on. And what we can all agree on is that children, we all love our children. Sure. We, want, we all want the best for our children. And every child deserves an opportunity to reach the promise of their promise. And That, and if they don't believe in the science, which is pretty clear, I mean, we don't need one more study to show what children need. We've got the strongest economic case that you could ever imagine, right? We know, you know, economists show that every dollar we invest in a child today, you reap 12 to $13 for that dollar. I mean, these policies pay, it's a negative cost, right? These policies pay for themselves. And even today, I mean, businesses are feeling the brunt of women leaving the workforce, you know, high quality, talented women leaving the workforce because we have no high quality early child care. So we've got an, a strong economic case for today and for tomorrow, even if you don't believe in the science. But I think most of us you know if we didn't believe in the science we wouldn't be nurturing our children and giving them lots of hugs and kisses to build their brains so
0: oh for sure it's something else that's interesting too is you know we we think of things like oh well we don't have the money for this program or for that program but when you look at other places around the world the money seems to be there in those situations but here in America for some reason the investment is so much lower almost non-existent i i don't have the exact statistics in front of me yes. but i'm sure you know what i'm talking about where yeah. america invests something like $500 or something per child while other countries are investing thousands and it's just it's so 14th
1: average that 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 statistic yes the average for developed nations in toddler childcare uh and education is about $14,000 per toddler. Oof. Norway is $29,000, we don't have to be Norway, we just need to be good enough, the average, right? In our country, as you said, we invest $500 per kid, like $500 versus $14,000. And let me just put it into context. I wish we could show the picture sure. of, the, of the GDP of our country versus any other country. We dwarf every other country, We're, our, G.D.P. is larger than friggin China's right we are a massive powerhouse of innovation and gross domestic product, are you telling me that we can't afford to ensure that we have paid parental and family leave so mothers don't have to go back to work two weeks after giving birth like seriously we do we. We have the economic case, we've got the scientific case, we even have the bipartisan support, right? Most people on both sides of the aisle agree that mothers shouldn't have to go back within two weeks. What we don't have is the public will bring together these voices to make it happen.
0: Well, something that would need to happen for that is this idea of community and people coming together. And that is a big focus of your book as well. Kind of the the idea of it takes a village to raise a child. It's not just like your your definition of parent is wider than just the person who gave birth to the child. It's kind of anybody who's going to be a caregiver and going to be a part of this process.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I want to ensure that I, when the listeners know that only the parent can parent, right? So sure. this is not about removing that. but but we all have a stake and a responsibility in supporting parents so that they can do what all parents want to do is get their kids off to the best possible start so so anybody from grandparents to aunts uncles those who decide that they don't want to have to have children but benefit from those children being raised well have a stake all parts of society have a stake Employ- this is not just about a policy play, and obviously we need those policies, we need more investment, but employers play a huge role. Mm-hmm. They're bearing the brunt as well of, you know, tearing down that wall that you aren't, can't be an ideal worker and also a parent, providing flexibility and reliability and help with childcare. We all, healthcare. we all play a role in building this parent nation so children can thrive.
0: And it's so important, so vastly important early on too, because I know so much of the the child's brain is formed in those early months and early years, so it's just so much more important even now it's like I, I think about my daughter who's sixteen months old now, I'm sure and hmm. Kanto has now sort of mushed her brain a little bit in some way, <laughs> uh, hopefully in a good way uh but it's just it, it is so important, and then to like rip people away or to make people. Make people make that choice of oh, am I gonna am I gonna go into work today or am I going to take care of my child who needs a little bit of help? Like, it, it, what an impossible decision to be put in right now.
1: Yeah, you know, and I really emphasize this book is not about one way to parent, sure. right? Yeah. I always say there are many ways to parent a child, but there's only one way to build that brain, and they need time and nurturing interaction. Parents need time to be able to spend with their children, and if they go to work and you know whether their desire or they need to that they should have the knowledge and the security that their children are being cared for in a nurturing warm environment um, by you know high quality child care providers who are being you know paid a living wage and dig- given dignity so um It's not that complex. I mean, the science is all there. The economic case is all there. So.
0: Your research for this book, because it is so in depth, I'm sure started many years ago before the pandemic uh, came across our world here. But I wonder over the last couple of years what you've seen because people did shift to working from home, and I know that brings stress into the world. I, I did it for uh, the first seven months of my daughter's life. I was working from home, you know, feeding my baby toddler on the air live every morning, and or my baby infant, and uh, it's just. But I still think of that time as time I would never have otherwise had. And it gives me a whole different perspective on this idea of parenting. Like in my mind, when the baby was coming, I was like, I'm going to be at work. We'll have a nanny, whatever. But then I was here all day. And I was just like, wow, this this is incredible. So I wonder, have you noticed a lot of people's mindset shifting in the last couple of years?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and lucky for your baby, by the way. I hope uh, so. <laughs> it, although, although then you realize how hard it is and you realize early child care providers should be paid more than surgeons. Like, seriously. Hey, my my, my wife is operating- a teacher
0: and I did all that, so I get it. Like, I understand.
1: <laughs> yeah. But, but more importantly, I think COVID really and the pandemic, I don't want to say shifted my views, but it really expanded what, what we need to do in this country. And importantly, the fact that it wasn't, you know, I work with incredible families from the South side of Chicago, primarily from low-income backgrounds where barrier after barrier are put in the way of them being able to parent the way they want. You know, it's almost impossible. But COVID-19 made it so clear that all parents are struggling in this country. I mean, I spoke, I decided to actually interview and include the voices of all families from all different socioeconomic, racial, ethnic, political backgrounds. And the one thing, two things that I found that at the end of the day, all parents love their kids. They wanna give their kids the best possible start. And almost all parents are struggling in this country. It is hard we have, I don't think we realize how hard we have made it for families that in other countries, it is not that way there is actually research um, by Jennifer glass and her colleagues that looked at all these developed nations and there's, there is science that shows that parents are less happy than non-parents in general parenting is hard let's face it we love our kids but it is hard but in those countries with more family friendly policies you know high quality child care paid leave the gap between the happiness gap between parents and non-parents is much smaller can you guess where it's largest in our country sure the us has the largest happiness gap of any country like we've made it so hard and we just We've just sucked it up that we've been convinced that like, oh, American individualism means that we should parent, do the hard and important job of parenting without support. We don't value the love and labor of parents in this country, and it needs to change.
0: It's interesting. And this is another thing that I wish we had visual for this conversation. But, you know, you see those maps of the world where you'll see every country in different colors and it's, you know, all countries that approve of XYZ policy or whatever. And whenever it comes to parenting and children, it's always pretty much America on an island by itself. (laughs) Most other countries are all like thumbs up, we're all in the green or whatever. Then there's America kind of standing out on its own in red, you know, occasionally somebody else too. But primarily, and it's so interesting to think, I know we're very lucky to live in this country in a million different ways. Oh, yeah. But at the same time, there are so many things where I just don't understand how we haven't gotten it yet. You know, why we haven't mentally figured out why some of these things are broken.
1: Yeah, I I think that, look, I am doing this as someone who loves this country sure. who wants all ch- I want to see all children thrive and i and i believe that we can have this shift and i'll tell you a bright spot but you know let's not forget that america you know in addition to their huge gross domestic product was at the forefront of pushing forward free public education because we decided that the an educated citizenry was important for the strength and innovation of this country. And we have reaped dividends. It's why we are, you know, who we are. But we've we just forgot that, you know, to follow the science, that learning doesn't start on the first day of kindergarten. It starts on the first day of life. And we need to support those who are building children's brains. And before I tell you the bright spot, like Finland, believe it or not, we think of them as, you know at the top of the education food chain they're doing it right their citizenry is really strong but actually it wasn't always that way and they were they lagged behind educationally as well and they just revamped their system and all and from an education standpoint, they, you know, have reaped the benefits. Um, but going back to why we haven't gotten there, um, I think, as I said, I think it's because we haven't found a way to bring together the 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 voice of all parents from all different backgrounds. We've been convinced that we're polarized and we can't see see eye to eye. But the truth is, this is something that brings us together. I spoke to so many parents, and they all sort of imagined the same world and the same supports. When you remove the names and like partisan stuff, uh, people want the same things. And the AARP, um, I think is a really powerful model of what a group, when you bring together voices, even though they look disparate for the betterment of all of them, uh, can do. So back, you know, a half a century ago, the elderly were the poorest, most underserved population. And through coming together, you know, across racial, ethnic, political divides, they were able to take, you know, a group that 50% were living below the minimum standards of decency and now no group is better supported as they should be. And they have decreased in poverty rates by 70%. And, you know, it's a different world for them. And I think parents can be the same for each other.
0: Do I lose you here at quarter QuarterPass?
1: It's so much fun talking to you, Jeff. I, know, I don't want to, to hold talk- you up
0: if you've got uh, yeah. somebody else. But if you do have a couple minutes, I'd like to keep the conversation going. So I, yeah, I don't want to mess me up your day. Sure.
1: Twelve fifteen. Okay, uh, yes, you're right. Well, I'd let better. me just let me thank sure. you.
0: So we, I, we have a we have a good close. I'm sorry that we don't have more time together, but uh, oh, Jeff,
1: you're awesome. I, I really would love to talk to you afterwards, especially as a father of a sixteen month old.
0: Well, I will. You know, I'm going to reach out to you because I would like to continue this conversation. Um, so I'm going to save what we have, but I would like to continue this at another time when you have a little bit more time to chat. Yeah. Uh, because I do feel like we only scratched the surface. So
1: yeah. And look at look at Parentnation.org because we've yeah. got like we've got free downloads stuff to bring parents together to really galvanize. So that's really what I'm excited to talk to you about as well. (laughs) All right, perfect. Well, I'll reach
0: out to you so we can set up another time to continue this, but good luck with the rest of your day. And uh, we will continue this soon.
1: Perfect.
0: Uh, Well, I I appreciate you giving me some more of your time. Uh, I felt like our last conversation was going so well. And then I looked at the clock and I was like, man, I just, I am rushing to try to get some of these questions in. I just, I'm going to have to ask her if we can do more another day.
1: No, it was so I had so much fun. That was like a crazy day of 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 radio tours. But I have to tell you, Jeff, my my conversation with you was my hands down favorite. There was one other one that I really enjoyed. But um, no, I enjoyed all of them. I don't mean that. But, you know, where you were like, oh, my gosh, this person not only totally gets it, but he's like. Uh, you, you're, you're a great radio interviewer. It's probably comes with the territory, but I just had to tell you. yeah.
0: Well, I appreciate it. They don't all go as well as that one did. I just felt like you and I kind of hit a rhythm in that one that I'm like, oh, I can't believe it's almost done. This is not fair. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so I, I do want to go back to... Where we kind of left off, this will be an interesting interview to post when I finally edit it all together because there are going to be two sort of distinct pieces of this because it's going to be like a before <laughs> and an after. But kind of where we left off when we were chatting, um, we were talking about ARP and how ARP came about in a time when older people, when seniors were really in a tough spot, like they were a group of people that were among the poorest in the country and just didn't have the resources that other groups of people had. So AARP comes around and now that's totally flipped around to where, you know, many of them are in a much better spot right now. And yeah, the idea that there needs to be something like that for parents for little kids too.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I use the, a- the ARP is truly a bright spot in so many ways. And I think there are so many lessons learned from it. I mean, obviously the, you know, the high level is that, you know, back half a century plus ago, the elder, you know, the poorest, most underserved segment of po- the population were the elderly. 50 plus percent lived below what they call the minimum standards of decency. They were voiceless. They were, you know, cast aside, marginalized. I mean, remember, today, the poorest segment of our population are children, children under five, which is an obscenity. But back then, it was the elderly. And through the AARP and Gray Lobby, amongst other things, really sweeping changes occurred. Um, Social Security, Medicare, really transformed what it is to be elderly. So poverty rates fell by like 70 percent. I mean, today, when you look at the elderly, I mean, their poverty rates have dropped 70 percent. There's no more active politically active population than the elderly. And what's interesting is that it always it wasn't always that way because you always think, oh, well, the elderly have always voted in, in large uh, numbers. And the truth is back then they didn't. And there's something about when you don't feel deserved, when you're marginalized, when you're you know stigmatized in some ways, you don't feel empowered to, to, to cast your vote. And I think... Obviously, children can't vote, but parents are very much in that same situation. You know, I think a unified voice could help transform not just the lot of children and the fact that they're the poorest segment of the population, but parents and they would start looking at themselves as a, I'm sorry, I'm like going on and on no, as a political voice. Yeah. <laughs> so I have so much to say. No. So, yeah,
0: no, but I think that it makes sense too. And, and I wonder because there have been efforts to get help for parents there. I mean, even more recent years, I feel like it's been a lot more in the forefront, or maybe because I'm a parent now, I'm hearing that message a lot more. But it, it seems like it's a lot louder now than it has been, say, in the last 10 years or so. It's a lot louder now. But I wonder if the fact that seniors tend to get more of their things or have been able to get more help over the years is because people put a a different a different weight on older folks like there's a different level of respect there's a different level of like oh you know you're you're the elders in our culture you know i wonder if some of that kind of comes from there or is it because older people hold office and older people are willing to give themselves the benefits that the younger people aren't going to get.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's multifactorial, but I want, to, I want to point out, right? You could say the same thing about parents. Parents are the guardians of our society's future. They are raising the next generation. They are children's first and most important teacher. We have all those same platitudes for parents, but we, we support them in very different ways. And I would actually argue that the elderly would be in the same position. And I'll tell I'll give you a a story. Back in the 1980s when we had stagflation and rampant you know inflation and all of that, and and they started trying to cut these supports for the elderly in the same way as they started trying to sort of tag mothers as undeserving mothers or for you know often marginalized women you know welfare queens like they they tagged them in these horrible names they actually tried to do that for the elderly too right. they started calling them instead of like these worthy elderly people they were the greedy geezers mm. they called, tried to call them and they tried to tag them in the same way to show that they weren't deserving so they could start cutting the supports for these people but because they had this unified voice not just a unified voice they had this they still do the strong lobbying organization right 300 million spent in the last 20 years you know only healthcare ph- big pharma and like have that amount of money they were able to deflect these you know these labels that turn what seem like deserving individuals into not deserving and Parents deserve the same thing. I mean, almost all parents want the same for their kids. They are working their tails off. Unlike in any other country, it is so hard to raise a child in this country and there's nobody advocating. There's lots of discussion. I mean, gosh knows, looking, you know, in the newspaper, social media, but we need a little bit we need to bring all of that together in
0: a much more intentional way. Do you think part of part of why efforts to help out parents have not worked out the same way as, say, by example, as it has for the elderly is that, say, AARP will start working with you when you're like 55 years old, I think it is, and you're with them until however long you want to be there. So for some folks, that could be 50 years of working with the AARP depending on how long you live. But whereas a parent where you really struggle, where you really Mm -hmm. need that support... Is for the first five years so people age out of it so like there might be parents that are super militant that are saying oh my gosh we really have to make this happen yeah but then when their kid turns five they're like yeah, I mean all right I can survive now like I've got kindergarten I'm able yeah. to make things happen so I-, I wonder if that's part of the reason why
1: yeah great point I mean you're really talking about the revolving door problem yeah.
0: right you're
1: you're in this pain even if you have three kids maybe it's like over 10 years and then you're out of it uh, I think that's part of the issue but I think there's a lot larger issue. We we often think about AARP in the same light as other sort of social activists as, you know, advocacy organizations, right? It's all about us marching, pushing forward our electoral might, our voice. The truth is the AARP is a well-oiled, two-sided marketplace. It's a business, right? So, you know, The elderly come for, you know, community for sure, for a sense of purpose for sure, for sure. But the collective purchasing power, right, I'm buying my insurance, my travel discounts, allows the AARP to have a huge, um, they're a $1.5 billion juggernaut right they're 38 million strong but even more strong even more powerful is this the fact that they have funds coming in they're like they're a big business in some ways but they're advocating on behalf of the the elderly so their their stakeholders are the elderly and i actually think that the it's not just parents in the first 5 years i mean i think it could be you know broader than the first 5 years but i think we'd need to bring in uh, the other stakeholders and constituents, right? Child care providers are, you know, critically important health care business, business could be leading the way. Um, so it would look a little bit different, I think. But I think in that same way, look, the the mighty lobbying dollars going in, it's got to play a big role, too.
0: I don't want to harp on this particular aspect for too much longer. Um, but there was something else I was just thinking about while you were talking about that, too. And it's, we have this uh, this individualism kind of idea and you know survival of the fittest idea in our society <laughs> where you have people that as they get older when laws get proposed that say like, "Hey, we're gonna offer free childcare," somebody who's maybe in their fifties or sixties will say, "Well, we didn't have free childcare when I was when I had kids that young. So why do parents now deserve free childcare? That's ridiculous." Or you know, the the topic that always gets brought up now with that is the um, college tuition. You know, re- getting giving money back to kids or giving you know, waiving their college tuition. And all oh, people are like, well, I had to pay my college tuition, so why do these kids not have to pay theirs? So it's interesting. I wonder if some of that holds it back too, because there's this idea of like, well, I had to do it, so why do these yeah, parents not? have
1: I to I walked it? through the snow. Both both, uh, yeah, hill, both
0: well, ways. Yeah, I
1: know. Well, you know, look, we are looking down the barrel of a fertility crisis, yeah. and you know, for, and you know, people can say what they want, but unless you at least maintain your population. You know, you're looking forward to a future where the economy shrinks. You don't have enough workers contributing to Social Security. So people think about, you know, when I get old that it's because of all the money I've put in. No, the money I've put in is going to today's seniors. The, the, the future Social Security is based on the employees in the workforce. And in that same way, when I go see a doctor, when I go to am driven on a bus by a bus driver, when I am have a lawyer or whatever person in society that's doing an important role, we can't forget that based on that is a highly educated workforce. So Even if you don't have a child or you're not a biologic parent, or you don't even care about kids, if you care about yourself and having a society that functions with a a strong economy, you're going to want to do this.
0: One thing I kept, I felt like I kept seeing while looking through Parent Nation and your work is the idea of choice, where these constructs need to be put in place to give parents the choice, you know, give a parent a choice to say, okay, I'm going to step back from work for a little while and I'm going to make sure that my child is taken care of and not have have that be detrimental to everything else or okay I'm comfortable now I can go back into work and my child has an available child care system they could go to or a- an available community where they can be a part of and be taken care of but choice kept popping up and I just I found that such an interesting idea because I don't I don't think we put ourselves in that place where we have a choice to do many things right now. So much of what we have to do, and I've been going through this for the last 17 months of my life, is sort of handed to you. You don't really have an option. It's like, this is it. This is what you're going to have to do now.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, you know, I always found it interesting or ironic that, you know, this idea— which I agree with, that the parents should have a choice in the way that they raise their children. Let me tell you, not only is there something called good enough parenting, there's something, the, the fact is, there are many ways to raise a child. There's only one way to build a brain. You can, you've got you know, talking and interacting, whether it's with, you know, a parent who stays home or a high quality childcare or the com- combination. But despite all of that, in talking to parents across the US from uh, the whole political spectrum, religious spectrum, education spectrum, etc. The the truth is, is that it it seemed like not only were all parents struggling, but they didn't feel like they had really the choice to raise their children the way they wanted. And, And that's, in some ways, the beauty of the first five years of life, that there's such an opportunity to come together to allow us to raise our children the way we want. And when you get in later, and I don't want to get into it, you know, there's lots of Discussions of cultural war. But this is a time period where everybody is being left on their own. Yeah. Everybody's struggling and everybody loves their kids and maybe, you know, pollyanna But I think it's an opportunity to come together because I think we're tired of being divided.
0: Oh, I totally agree. And it is funny because that phrase is very true. There are more things that unite us than take us apart i always say the phrase wrong but i think you know what i'm getting at we agree on so many more things than we'd like to believe and when you ask people questions in surveys you find that out you see that people are answering things very similarly across the board but it's like when you put them in the room together now all of a sudden we can't agree on anything and we can't seem to make anything work and it's so fascinating how you know politics or culture wars have taken over our society in a way where they where they will people are willing to sacrifice Daycare or free daycare just because it does not align with that political belief. And it's like, well, that that could really help you and your family. Like, why is that something that you're gonna stand on?
1: I think the truth is that most people want the same thing. I can tell you, when you when I talk to families across across the line, you say, Look, if you had a magic wand, what would it look like? What would the supports that you would need? I mean, remove all this political language stuff right cuz anybody i mean one of the women who read my book and has been giving feedback i mean she's from the evangelical community very much like you know i don't want handouts but you remove all of that and she wants the same things right she you know she just wants she wanted to stay home with her child and because of the lack of healthcare and a living wage couldn't and She wants that and deserves that, and in that same way, I I think if we anchor on the things that we all want, tune out all those loud people who are trying to divide us, you know, on all sides, right? Um, it could be so much better.
0: Uh, there's a big part of your book too called uh, streetlight effect, and uh, I I like to think that I'm going to describe this correctly, but it's this idea of like people focus on what they can see. So if you if you have you know a dark area and there's a streetlight, you only really see what's underneath that streetlight. And I I just kept thinking about that. Like we have research that tells us certain things, but I wonder how much of it is is really honest to God truth about what parents are facing because we're probably not necessarily researching with some of the people that are struggling the hardest because they're probably less likely to respond to a survey or less likely to get involved with a study. So I, I kept coming back to that kind of idea too. Like, you know, we hear this idea, America is the richest country in the world. And in some ways it certainly is. We have the richest people in the world that live here, but that kind of skews the average in one direction where you, you take out some of those yeah. very wealthy people and you've got a lot of folks that are really struggling, but you don't necessarily see them the same way when you look at those statistics?
1: Not only do you not see them the same way in terms of the statistics, but sometimes I think we forget, not that we forget, but the one thing that I did find in addition to the universal struggle was, as I said, this common desire just to give their children the best possible start in life. And I think if we can remind ourselves of that, it goes a long way to building empathy across across the line. But I love that you brought up the like effect, because I do think it's an interesting metaphor, because for so long, we have been focusing on K-12 as the answer, and now pre-K. But the truth is, is that the most impactful important time. It doesn't mean that the later isn't important because it is important, but those first three years of life are so critical for brain development. And it's exactly when we sort of leave parents to, you know, go it alone and you know to struggle. And it's like we're in some ways squandering the universe's greatest gift. I mean, those first three years of life, I mean, it is why we are the smartest of all species it's because our brain is being grown but it expected parents and caregivers and nurturing environments to be there to help build it and we're just making it so hard on parents
0: and one thing i feel like we've focused primarily in our conversation about more along the lines of the education route and how children's brains need to grow and how that these support systems could be put in place to help that but there's also the sort of mental and physical aspect of what parents go through in those first few years as well that I think people are shining a light on more now. But over the years, it has not been there. For example, postpartum depression is definitely something that has not been discussed nearly as often as it probably should. Um, it's, it's so common and it's so hard to see and hard to notice. Even my wife, you know, I used to check in with on her a lot just to see if anything was going on to try to, you know, get ahead of the curve if there was something that she needed help with. And even she would say to me down the line, she's like, I really struggle, but I didn't know how to put it into words. And I didn't really know how to like stop and think about that. She's like, So I appreciate that you were asking. But even when you were asking, I couldn't tell you yes because I didn't know. I didn't really know that what those struggles were going on. But meanwhile, we we immediately inject people right back into daily life without that time to really stop and collect, you know, mentally and emotionally and figure out how they're going to move forward.
1: Yeah. I love that you bring that up. And I love that you checked in with your wife. You're so good, Jeff. Well, unfortunately, seriously. we had a lot of
0: friends that went through it very seriously and had some really rough times. So it was very on top of my mind when we were having a yeah. baby. I was like, this is something I want to make sure I get ahead of yeah. as best that I can. I mean, there's only so much I can do, but as best that <laughs> I, I, <know>. I can.
1: <laughs> no, you just have to use that radio voice with her and you'll <laughs> you'll pull anybody out of that uh um, no, but seriously, I mean, I think that, you know, even in my, not even, but in the book, I would talk about the fact that we we think about just the input of language and interaction, building a child's brain, but, you know, the support of the mental health of the caregivers, you know, especially mothers in the postpartum period, you know, child care co- providers who are some of the most poorly reimbursed people in society and the stress that comes along with that we when you put it in the framework of building a parent nation of, of course their mental health is so critical to their well-being and their children's well-being and you know the CDC just came out with that recent report that you know obviously teens are struggling mightily but mothers are really struggling mightily too and we know that there's host of negative impacts for them and for their children and we need to be better around supporting and building out that mental health system in this country too this is kind of an aside
0: uh but my my wife is a teacher at middle school and one thing that we you know we kind of rolled our eyes at and kind of joked a little bit about when the start of the pandemic and everybody started coming out with you know how much they hated schools being closed and all these different things and they, they the one thing they kept harping on was schools being closed hurts the mental health of our children and yes, like there's a lot of aspects of that that are actually true. But my wife would say, well, where the hell have these parents been for years? Like the mental health of these children has been struggling for quite some time. But this is now all of a sudden now they're they're starting to jump. She's like, at least people are recognizing it now. But it's a shame that it took a catalyst like a global pandemic for people to realize, well, our kids are having a hard time right now. Yeah. All the stuff being
1: thrown at everyone. I yeah. mean, it's exactly you would hope that this would be the thing that brings us together. (laughs) It's just so strange that it's not.
0: I know. know. Uh, Uh, Collective identity was something else that we kind of touched on the last time that we were speaking and collective identity can be great, but can it also be dangerous?
1: If you, if you're implying collective identity then creates the other. Um, I totally see what you're saying. I think that what collective identity could provide from a constructive standpoint is part of the reason that I think that we haven't gotten the support for parents and caregivers in this country has been the fact that we've not only convinced parents that this is a go-it-alone thing, Mm -hmm. that if you're not doing well, it's because you're failing, uh, which has been a a convenient way to divide uh, people, but the fact that they don't see each other as allies, right? They don't see this common love and desire to just get their children off to the best possible first start. Hasn't been a glue that has brought them together to advocate on behalf of, first of all, children who can't vote, right? Because that's one of the problems children can't vote or advocate on behalf of themselves and other parents who are doing parents and caregivers who are doing the critical role of raising the next generation. So yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, in the long, long term, you know, every anything on any any extreme isn't good. But I think that we'd be very we're far away from having that. I think for now, we really need to find our there's more that unites us uh, and our common voice makes us stronger and allows us to finally get supports um, for the early years, and I have to tell you one last thing. Yeah, the tr- the truth is, is that investment in the early years not only supports parents and children, it impacts the gender. Inequity issue. It impacts civil rights. It impacts labor. Um, it's really just a framework for understanding why investing from day one, you know, in more than just children, but their parents and their communities, is so critical. So I, I see a lot more positives and positive spillovers to the rest of society than than uh, you might. Might
0: think. Oh, so. for sure. I mean, I think that makes perfect sense. Just reading your work in Parent Nation, it, it always seems to come out in an area where it's like, well, there's so many benefits to this. It seems crazy that we aren't doing more. <laughs> <laughs> there was also part of the book too. And, and I forget uh, which chapter it was in. So forgive me. Uh, but it was something that I hadn't really thought much about or didn't know anything about before becoming a parent. And that's this idea of the fourth trimester. And when you were discussing it in there, it just, it just makes you think so much. Like you look, you know, we're, we're human beings. Beings. We're the strongest animals on the planet. Nothing can touch us. But when you look at it, like there are so many other animals that when they give birth, they're their babies are ready to go. I mean they're walking, they're running, they're they're <laughs> running for the sea like in a sea turtle's case like the instant they're born they're like we're gone, we're going. But for human beings it is not that case. And it's fascinating to think more about this idea of the fourth trimester where like you really need that three those three more months to help the baby get to where it should be before it even comes out of you. Yeah.
1: No, I don't think people and I hadn't really thought deeply about it either. Like, why do babies come out so helpless? I mean, they they can't even hold their heads up. It takes like a year plus for them to be able to feed themselves. I mean, you know, if any other animal in the animal kingdom was like that, they'd be dead. Right. And. The reason is is that, you know, the universe made a trade-off, right? The fact is, if we were going to be as smart as we needed to be or were going to be, and our brains were going to be as big as it was they were supposed to be for us to be that smart, you know, if we did it all in utero, which is what animal other animals do, we wouldn't be able to fit through a mother's pelvis. I mean, you know, and as any mother can tell you, you know the head is big enough <laughs> as it is and but but there was an expectation in the in the early months in the you know even beyond the early months in the first few years that that the caregiver would be there to finish the brain growing right cuz you the brain is only about a third of what it will be in terms of size when it comes out and then it grows to 85% of the size in the in the first two years of life, two to three years of life. And it's contingent on this nurturing interaction. Parents talk and caregivers talking, interacting, which results in those connections. And the fact that we ignore this, or we make it hard for parents and caregivers to do that, we're squandering the reason that we are the smartest of all creatures, right? I mean, it's almost like, it's crazy how much we, we sort of ignore why it is so important. So, so yeah, I'm glad that you like, I like that fact too.
0: Well, that checks off most of the things that I had, um, for, to talk to you about from Parrot Nation. But I also really enjoyed the fact that when we started our conversation, we were kind of talking about cochlear implants. And I feel like I kind of rushed through that really quick because like, man, well, I only have like 25 minutes with her. I got to make sure we talk about the book. <laughs> but I was thinking about this after the fact, because you were saying that I told you that my dad, when he first got his cochlear implant, he only got one because they told him if he got two, the second would be considered cosmetic and they'd have to pay full price. Yeah. You had mentioned that insurance now has changed a little bit where he could probably do it. And I remember specifically, he told me after going through about a year after he got it he was like you know it's amazing to be able to hear he's like but i lived 50 plus years of my life not being able to hear if i had known how much was going to go into this as you know an older adult Already, you know, middle age. He's like, I don't know if I would have even gotten one because he's like, it's legitimately brain surgery. He's like, it was really hard for me to recover from this. So it was kind of, it was interesting to think about that because you think, I would think he's getting this gift of being able to hear. And in so many ways, it has been a gift for him. But also he's like, God, it was so it was hard. Yeah. yeah,
1: although I have to tell you, I'm glad that he did. There's so much research on the side of dementia and isolation as people get older without hearing. So I feel sad. I mean I'm sorry that it was so hard, but I'm happy that he's connected to his grandbaby and and you and uh, but I'll tell you my favorite part when you first, do you remember what you first said when we started the interview? about Jerry Maguire.
0: Oh yeah, this is your manifesto, yeah.
1: (laughs) I love, I told my husband that he goes, I love that. I was like, yeah, it was hilarious.
0: Well, I'm I'm hoping your outcome is better than Jerry's.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, although it was pretty funny. Like, it is so much harder to, you know, everybody, 30 million words, people are like, yes. All I have to do is talk to my baby. And the world will be beautiful right and really what we're what really needs to happen is this societal shift and let's face it it's a little bit harder than the three t's but we can do it
0: i think i might have gotten lucky because the first seven months of my daughter's life i was still broadcasting from home so she was literally in a bassinet next to my studio equipment for all my entire morning radio show every single day for seven months so I she just sat there listening to me yap for. Seven all,
1: I mean, oh my gosh. She's gonna, those neural connections
0: incredible. <laughs> I kind of miss it sometimes because there were some interviews. The only way that I'd be able to keep her quiet would be to have her like in a baby Bjorn or something on my chest. And I'd be doing the oh. interview, like swaying back and forth, trying to talk tell to me,
1: her. tell me you have a picture of that. There's, I mean, there's something need...
0: somewhere I have of that, but,
1: <laughs> Oh, you have to send me that picture. I'm tweeting when, when, when this comes out, let me tweet it out. I love that. that I'll dig is... it up.
0: I know I've got one somewhere. Oh man. It was, it was crazy, but it was, but I would never. I would not trade any of that ever because it was so such a fantastic moment to be able to spend that time with her, you know.
1: Yeah, it's such a beautiful thing and it and then then you blink your eyes and she's wanting to bring her boyfriend home from college and stay in the house.
0: <laughs> Thankfully I've got some time before that happens.
1: <laughs> you, you know, which so so do you remember the I don't remember what chapter about my son, Asher, who was breached and I had to get a C-section because his head was so that this is Asher. Okay. this is Asher who wants to bring home his girlfriend, you know. I tell you, doesn't he remember everything I did for him?
0: <laughs> they never do, right? They never do. No, no. So. Well, I really appreciate your time, especially the extra time. Thank you so much for no, this. I, I love the book. I loved it. It, it's so eye-opening, And like I said before, I really, I hope that people read this and they take something from it, understanding that collectively we could make a very big change and it wouldn't, maybe the change sounds drastic, but it really wouldn't have to be a drastic change. It's just a few things that could fall into place. And it could really be a game changer for all of us in this society. Yeah. Uh, From
1: your mouth. So, (laughs) Jeff, you're awesome. (laughs) Thank you.
0: All right. Thank you. Talk
1: to you later. Bye. Thank you.
0: Big thank you to Dr. Dana Suskind. her book, Parent Nation, Unlocking Every Child's Potential, Fulfilling Society's Promise, is available now wherever you get your books. Truly a great piece of work that I sincerely hope gets the attention of the right people. And thank you to all of you for listening today. I appreciate you. Until next time, be well.